Week in Review is heading out on the road. We're tackling what is set to become one of the most powerful and polarizing issues in Kansas City, reparations. Give us what we're due. How do you determine who's supposed to get it? I don't know why they would be giving more status than any other group of people. If you haven't been paying attention, Kansas City has just approved a new panel to compensate black residents for slavery and the city's historic role in segregation. The first reparations commission meeting. Hallelujah. Why do we see such a different life expectancy on one side of truth versus another? Why don't we see the same opportunities for community wealth building in certain parts of our city? And why is it so darn hard to get a loan? So how will it work? Who will be helped? And who's on the hook for paying? This hour, we're joining American Public Square on location at the University Academy at 68th and Holmes to lift up the hood on the issue. What we're asking for is justice. What are we going to accomplish? Who pays? How do you determine who pays? Only when it comes to, to black people is it an issue of, well, uh, why should everybody else have to pay for it? What about reparations for Native Americans? This is uncompromised, unapologetically black for the harms and crimes against black people in our city. Along with reparations supporters and skeptics, flying into town to join us is someone who's already making it work, the architect of the nation's first black reparations program in Evanston, Illinois. People have been extremely nasty to me. Stay with us. Reparations in KC is straight ahead. This special presentation of Kansas City Week in Review was made possible by the William T. Kemper Foundation, Commerce Bank trustee, and the Health Forward Foundation, with ongoing support from AARP Kansas City, RSM, Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Gorley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, the restaurant at 1900, and by viewers like you. Thank you. So what on earth is reparations? Uh, how do they work? Who gets helped and who's on the hook for paying? Hello, I'm Nick Haynes. And those questions and so many more we're gonna be answering uh, together over the next hour as we bring together leaders and critics of the reparations uh, movement. It is no longer an academic exercise. Kansas City is on the clock. Mickey D was picked by the mayor to serve as an advisor to the new Kansas City Reparations Commission. The panel has been given 12 months to come up with ways to make amends for slavery and the city's role in the historic enforcement of segregation. Seeing one, if not two, eyebrows about the city's new push is author, commentator, and documentarian Jack Cashel. Jack is a PhD from Purdue University, where he taught media and literature. While some say it won't work, it simply can't be done, meet Robin Rue Simmons, the architect of the nation's first publicly funded reparations program in the Chicago suburb of Evanston. She flew in from Illinois to join us on this panel. Pete Mundo made a much shorter trip to be here. The Kansas City Talk Radio host tracks the latest news from a behind a microphone at KCMO Talk Radio, where reparations has become a hot topic with Kansas City listeners. And Melissa Robinson is the Kansas City Councilwoman who spearheaded the reparations ordinance through City Hall. She is president of the Black Healthcare Coalition. Please welcome our panel.
By the way, the sixth panelist is you. We'll be taking your questions during the course of this program. But first, Mickey Dean. It's over 150 years since the abolition of slavery, 70 years uh, since we've desegregated public facilities in Kansas City. Uh, why are we moving forward right now with reparations? And why should we be doing it at all? Reparations has been a demand for black people since prior to the end of the Civil War. So black people have been demanding reparations uh, for quite a long time. Why reparations? First of all, African people were brought here uh, in chains uh, and forced to work. Not only did they were, were they forced to work, but they were forced to work uh, for free. And the, the value of their labor basically was the foundation uh, of the initial accumulation of capital in this country. This, the wealth of this country was built initially on slave labor. And once they were emancipated, they were emancipated with absolutely nothing. There was a brief period of reconstruction where this country tried to do right by black people. That didn't last. And after that, we went through this whole period of, of Jim Crow. There was abuse. There, was, there were lynchings. Uh, and, and most importantly, we were not able to take advantage of those opportunities to create wealth, particularly two, two things. One was the Homestead Act, 1862, where families were given 160 acres uh, to, to, to form a homestead. Black folks got very little of that. Uh, and in fact, today it's estimated that about anywhere from 40 to 70 million white families are still benefiting from the wealth of that. Then you had the GI Bill, where veterans were allowed to get money for uh, education for, to, to start businesses. Uh, uh, and, and for um, to buy homes. Black people were left out of that. Let me just say one more thing. Uh, and what all of that led to was this tremendous wealth gap between black and white. And uh, the estimate is that in order for black people to catch up on this wealth gap with white people, it's going to take about 220 years or so. Most of us don't have 220 years. We uh, owe reparations, and we deserve okay. reparations. You have talked about a lot of examples there from the Homestead Act, the GI Bill. Those are all federal policies. Why is that the city's problem, Melissa Robinson? Well, we know that reparations, true reparations, there will have to be. Um, it is a, a issue that the federal government is going to have to take up. That is um, not up for debate, but or I guess it is up for debate today. But um, um, with the city, we need to look at our participation in upholding in the laws that we had on our books. So for example, it wasn't until um, you know, very recently in which some of the, the deeds were changed that you know, we removed them saying that you can sell um, your homes to African-Americans. There's a lot of policies that are on the books today that the city um, has contributed to the problem. And so in order for us to repair those things, we have to uh, make amends. You helped make this possible, this reparations commission, as you spearheaded that through the city hall back in January. Um, but what will this actually do, this reparations commission? What this commission will do would be able to look at things from a comprehensive lens. Let's just talk about a vote that we took today on I-670 about the, the, the deck over I-670. Um, I went in there and I said, you know, I really can't support this because, you know, we have this extreme issue with asthma in the black community. So while we're thinking about, you know, making an amenity for individuals who are uh, primarily, you know, visitors, that they don't have to experience the smog over I-670, what about the community that has been left out? The city's gonna invest $10 million in this deck over I-670. What about a million dollars to address urban parks 
in the disinvested community. The third district has the least amount of, of, of green space. And that's by design, it's not by coincidence. We can't just talk about the things and talk about the disparities and talk about the facts. We have to follow it up with action and we have to follow it up with investment. Robin Ruth Simmons, many people say that uh, this can't be done. It's not possible. It's not even wise to do it, yet you've done it in Evanston, uh, Illinois. How did that actually work? Did everybody in Evanston, Illinois, who was African-American, get a check from City Hall as a result of your work? Well, we're in process right now. And it worked because we had a city that was committed to um, the liberation and repair of the black community for specific harms in Evanston, not for um, addressing federal harm, but specifically, Evanston was anti-black had discriminating zoning practices and other laws and policy that were responsible for our racial gaps, our racial gaps in wealth, home ownership, life expectancy, and so on. And so we had overwhelming support from a very diverse community, a predominantly white and predominantly affluent community, in fact, to advance reparations. And we did it through community engagement, ongoing public education around reparations, understanding how it's very different than ordinary public policy. And we had a city council that voted yes to reparations. And so we're taking our path forward, uh, setting aside budgets. Initially, it was $10 million from cannabis sales tax. We've added an additional $10 million uh, for real estate transfer tax. And last year, we began dispersing uh, reparation benefits in the amount of $25,000 yes. benefits. So it's $25,000 to eligible black residents to use towards things like home repairs or a down payment uh, on a house. Uh, how did you, though, decide who could get that money? So we used a narrowly tailored legal framework advised by our corporation counsel with support of other experts like um, uh, Howard Law School. And so we have a period of harm from 1919 to 1969 after fair housing was passed that was anti-black as it relates to housing. And so that informed our first remedy. Um, in so addition, you had to live in Evanston, Illinois and be African-American between those years. You had to live in Evanston, be black between those years or be a descendant. So I qualify as a descendant. What if you weren't born during that period of time and weren't a descendant of someone who lived during that period of time? Was there huge resentment about other black residents there saying, you left me out, I can't believe you? Not huge resentment. What the community did prioritize was making sure those that were directly harmed were awarded first. And so in that case, we have um, those that were directly harmed. That made residents around 70 years old the first recipients of our benefit. But there's tons of uh, disagreement and disapproval from the form of reparation to who is eligible to um, the amount of the budget and that sort of thing, you know, but we have to move forward in consensus, learn from um, the actions that we've taken and build on it. Now, if you thought that everybody would come out of the woodwork to claim, whether it be a down payment on a home or 25,000 for home repairs, uh, that didn't happen, did it? As we speak, around 650 residents applied and as of now, only 16 people have actually seen any money? How can that be? Well, I'll tell you, we had um, over 600 that applied. And after we started dispersing our first beneficiaries, we were hearing from residents that were saying, I wish I would have applied. I didn't think it was real. I didn't think anybody would get a dollar. So there was some regret 
where people didn't believe, understandably didn't believe in a system that had long oppressed and discriminated against black people, but now believe. And so I'm, I'm happy to say that not only have we increased our budget, we've um, reinvented the way that we can disperse. So initially we had large allocations. Now we have rolling every $25,000 that we accumulate. So the benefits are getting out much quicker now. Folks are taking cash, that's creating less barriers, and we're still building on the work. Now, according to polling by the Pew Center for Research, only 29% of Americans support the idea that the government should make payments to black Americans for historic wrongs. Pete Mundo, why is that? And what is the biggest objection from your listeners when they hear about Kansas City adopting a reparations program? Well, there's two things. There's the priority list of the city. What, um, where does that issue land when it comes to fighting crime, when it comes to infrastructure, things of that nature? Um, 911 dispatchers, right? We're, we're really short on those. Uh, we're tripled the national average, I believe, on picking up a 911 call. Uh, and then it's the, the fairness of who pays. Who pays? How do you determine who pays? If it is a tax, is that the best allocation of that tax money, whether it is uh, for home ownership, whether it is for direct payments, those are the issues that, that people uh, fairly bring up if they look at that and they say, hey, um, if you have a new Hispanic immigrant in this city, in the northeast part of Kansas City, they had nothing to do with any of this. Um, why is a cent of their tax dollars going towards this? So I think you look at that and you say to yourself, what did I say that was incorrect? Why does it matter what they think? What okay. matters is what we, we, we have people on the panel to answer this question. So, so that's, as, why, I that's, say, why as I was saying. That, that's why they're here. Thank um, you. But there are there two points that you made that are, I think, interesting. And I, I'm going to ask uh, Mickey and Melissa to respond to them if, if I can. But first of all, the political point that we do have all these other homicides going through the roof, all of these other issues in the city. How can we justify the focus and spending on reparations when there are those other city priorities? I'm so glad that Mr. Mundo brought that up because when you think about crime and violence, um, African Americans make up the vast majority of those who are perpetrators and victims of uh, crime and violence and homicide. Um, the uh, third district is uh, predominantly the place in which a lot of the bullet to skin um, shootings are happening and also the homicides that are happening. Those are just symptoms of a greater problem and so we have to deal with the root causes and reparations is about repairing that harm that's done so that we can get to a level level playing field so people can't actively participate um, in the economy the issue of violence is about uh, a poverty and so we have to address those root causes when you talk about infrastructure we um, we're looking at charging stations uh, for electric vehicles. And we found that we couldn't put any charging stations in the third district because guess what? We don't have any street lights. Why are the, there are these differences in different parts of our community? Is because it's been intentional disinvestments in parts of our community. And I always use Brush Creek as an example because it was designed with the concrete-based dam in the affluent parts of our community, but a mud-based dam in the segregated black parts of our community. You've Kansas got some City, great examples there. I want to keep moving Kansas with this, City, though. It's about economics. It's about GDP. You, you've and done if it. everybody's not participating in the economy, then we can't, we can't grow as an overall city. The second concern that Pete mentioned was who would be on the hook for paying. And I want to ask Mickey Bedina. You're just starting this reparations commission, just being formed. That's a big deal. 
You've got a 12 months now to come up with some initial recommendations. How are you going to answer that question of who is on the hook for paying that? Their job is not to try to find out how it's going to get funded. Their job is to determine what, would, what, would, what proposals would create um, uh, justice for black people. Now, when it, when it comes to funding, you know, it's, it's, it's really strange that this country can find money to fund whatever it decides it wants to fund. It just came up with $4 trillion, I think, for um, $4 trillion for, for, for COVID, you know? Anytime that there needs to be money for war, this country can find money for war. Uh, this, this country found money to provide the Japanese with reparations. So, so what I'm saying is that it, it, only when it comes to, to black people is it an issue of, well, uh, why should everybody else have to pay for it? You know, I'm paying, for, my taxes are paying for uh, killing machines, you know, for war. My taxes are paying for a lot of things that I don't support, right? But we don't, we're not getting asked, uh, well, can I, should, should my taxes support this, should my taxes support that? But it's only when it comes to us. You mentioned, though, at the very beginning, though, you mentioned that we've done this before. Um, cast your mind back to 1988, Jack Cashel. That's when President Ronald Reagan issued an apology to Japanese Americans who were forcibly rounded up on and placed in internment camps at the start of World War II, and Congress gave them $20,000 each for the harm the government caused. That was more than 82,000 people, and I've tabulated this. That's $1.6 billion, Jack. Was it wrong to do that, or, or is there a difference here? There's a big difference. And, What's and the, the difference? Well, one is time, but I, Nick, if I could, I want to get back to what uh, Melissa said about root causes. I think we need to... Before we get into the, the micro questions, we need to get to the macro questions. First of all, Melissa, totally agree with you on the park over I-670. I've been in town for a long time. Stupidest idea I've heard yet. Uh, and most expensive for what you get. And your point's exactly right. However, when we talk about root causes, in throughout the 60s, the black-white income gap was narrowing. That's not great, but it's heading in the right direction. In 64, we have two things to come to pass. One is the Civil Rights Act, fine. The other one is not, that is the Great Society. And there's a trade-off with the Great Society. And the trade-off is this, we'll give you Medicaid, we'll give you uh, food stamps, we'll give you AFDC, we'll target your uh, income to uh, your rent uh, in housing, but you gotta, the price you have to pay is to get the old man out of the house. This is the beginning of the, of the breakdown of, in many ways, the black community. And it's the reason why, let me just tell you this, you know what the difference in homicide rate between Johnson County and Jackson and Kansas City is? 47 times more likely to be murdered in Kansas City than in Johnson County. You are seven times more likely to be murdered by something other than a gun in Kansas City than be murdered by a gun and in Johnson County. And the point of saying that is what? But the point of saying that is that the root cause of this is family breakdown. Total, uh, it, is the, is the, it is, if you could solve that, you could solve all these other problems, they would fall into place. When you talk about um, the breakdown of the black family, let's talk about mass incarceration and how a lot of African-Americans were pulled out of the home, African-Americans were pulled out of the home because of mass incarceration. And so we have to, again, think about how society has participated and how the government has participated through policies to address these issues. But there is intentional disinvestment. When the city has a billion dollars of its um, special obligations funds going into one area, one area, affluent areas, 
and not the same investment going into other areas, that's an issue that we have to begin to grapple with. That's an issue that we have to address. Okay. Quickly, and we're going to get some questions from the audience. Yeah, but, but I just want to address, address what he said. He talks about the difference between Johnson County and, and Kansas City. Well, here's the difference. See, in Johnson County, when they created the suburbs, right, and, they, and these suburbs were basically created so white people would have somewhere to live outside of the city, Black communities were redlined at that time, okay? Black communities couldn't buy houses in the suburbs because they couldn't, they couldn't get mortgages. Uh, and, so, and so therefore, the suburbs were able to thrive. Most of the people that, that, that ended up in the suburbs took advantage of these government programs, like the GI Bill, which black people didn't have opportunities to, like uh, the GI Bill for education, the GI Bill to start. See, it's no accident that there's a difference in what's going on in Central City, Kansas City, and what's going on in Johnson County. As Melissa said, it was very intentional. It was intentional to keep people oppressed and locked up in these crowded and poor conditions in the inner city. All of that was done with, with not only federal, federal government policy, state government policy, city government policy. So it, 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 what you're trying to say, well, the problem is just black people. There's some, patho some pathological about black people as opposed to the fact that black people were not intentionally oppressed. So they didn't have the opportunities that the people in Johnson County had. That's the difference in Johnson County. I want to bring in, we're going to have your questions in just a moment. Thank you very much. But Robin Rue Simmons, I mean, you're traveling all around the country. We're thrilled to have you here. You've been, in, you're going to Tulsa. You were just at the United Nations last week. That's how far you're traveling. And we're so appreciative to get you. But you've been listening to some of the objections. And I'm sure some of those you've heard before. What is your best advice to leaders in Kansas City about what they need to know about putting a reparations program in place and what they should not do based on your experience in Evanston? Well, I have to start by saying I'm here because of the leadership in Kansas City already. Uh, Mr. Mickey Dean, thank you for your leadership, your mentorship. He's been fighting this fight long before me. Um, Councilwoman, thank you for being the fearless legislator that this city needed to get the commission established. So great job, great leadership. Um, I'll say that I have been all across the country and the world um, really building the case for local initiatives for reparations and public education, I think ongoing public education is the most important piece to a successful community supported reparations initiative, understanding why reparations. Um, some folks just don't understand the anti-blackness that's still baked into the current public policy right now today. Is there one thing you wouldn't have done if you have known in advance, in hindsight? No. Okay, all righty. Claire Bishop, Executive Director at American Public Square, has been taking your questions, and we have plenty of them, Claire. Thank you, Nick. First question tonight from our audience. This comes from Philip, who is a KCPBS viewer. What did Kansas City do in the past that would make them responsible for today's economic disparities? Was redlining a city policy or a banking insurance policy? And then how about restrictive covenants? Were those uh, policies from the city or were those a real estate policy? That's question number one. Okay, let's get to that. Melissa, do you have an answer to that? Aren't they um, really private businesses who are doing that or the mortgage and insurance industries? and not the city? No, there were city policies on the books as it relates to um, where you could buy a house, uh, redlining, um, and enforcing those, those policies. And so our, um, the, the establishment of the commission really did talk about Kansas City's participation in upholding segregation, upholding oppression, um, those segregation laws. I mean, those were on the city's books. Those were city policies. Uh, we heard from uh, Robin about what was happening in Evanston, that it was really people who were in 
uh, Evanston between the years like 1919 and 1969, who lived through those housing policies. Is that what Kansas City is going to do too? Narrowly frame this through a very narrow period of time that people can be eligible for reparations? Well, through legal advice, we have learned that it does need to be directly related to city policy. It cannot be that we're just applying reparations because of slavery. It has to be a specific policy. And so the work that the commission is doing, the research that they're doing, is really critical to determine what those things are. And so those things are forthcoming. We don't know how much the reparations are going to be. We don't know if it's going to be housing. We don't know what the recommendations are going to be. We don't know how we're going to fund it. We first have to get a report and we have to get recommendations um, and then we'll have to um, go through the legislative process. Another question, Claire. Yes, Marilyn in the audience asks, what about reparations for Native Americans? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly certainly for um, Native Americans. I think it's a worthy issue and a worthy topic. And, and that's where I think, you know, from the broader picture, um, what do you do when there's not enough satisfaction around what's being done on the issue of reparations? Um, we heard about Evanston, and it started off as a housing issue, and it became the ability for cash payments. And then, of course, you have um, ideas coming out of San Francisco for $5 million uh, direct payments out there. So who, um, how, what, where, uh, it, it's a snowball effect. And that's where I think there remains a lot of concern. Well, Native, uh, Native Americans were major slave owners, which is an uh, unfortunate part of American history. So that, that, it gets really kind of complicated there. Yeah, two things. First of all, uh, uh, we support the, uh, all of the groups, Native, Native Americans and anybody else who's been oppressed by this government getting their due. So we have, we have no conflict with that uh, uh, whatsoever. But, but that's not part of the purview, though, of this Mayoral Reparations Commission? This, this is about black reparations. Period. Strictly black reparations. Yeah. But that's not to say that, that we are, we're not in support of, uh, because, because obviously, uh, and, and, you know, listen, listen, I, I know the whole story about, you know, some Native Americans slave owners, but, but Native Americans basically were forced off their land. They were decimated. They were driven into reservations. We'll address that with them about the whole slavery thing. But the, the story of the Native Americans is not being slaveholders like the white slaveholders. Well, the story of the Native Americans is that they, too, were murdered. They were, they were uh, kicked off of their land. And they were, they were forced onto reparations. So that, that's just not a, a, a good analogy at all. Robin Rue Simmons, how did you handle that in Evanston? Were Hispanics involved? Were Asian Americans? Were, um, did you have Native Americans? Were they part of the reparations program? And what about if you were mixed race? Did you actually get involved in that? Well, absolutely. Every community was involved as an ally and as a support. But how about to gain reparations Absolutely itself? not. You this limited is, that. This is black reparations. This is uncompromised, unapologetically black for the harms and crimes against black people in our city. And so I also want to make the point that I hear support for Japanese Reparations and Civil Liberties Act of 1988. H.R. 40 was modeled after that and introduced only the next year in 1989, using that as a precedent. But here we are now, over 30 years later, and still no um, commission established for the black community. I want to hear another question from you, Claire. So first, from Jim, uh, who submitted this question ahead of time, how is it justifiable to harm people today financially of any race, ethnicity, religion, or gender by choices made by people in the past who had uh, 
to the people today who had no involvement in those choices? That's the first part of the question. And the second one I think relates nicely to it. What harm will reparations do to Caucasian Americans if awarded? Okay, who would like to answer those questions? What was the second one? What would be the harm to Caucasians as a result of paying reparations? Was the, am I Correct. clarifying yes. that? Well, the answer is nothing because we're not a monolithic group of white, black, <laughs> exactly. Asian, Latino. Right. That's the answer. <laughs> the answer is that in this country, if you look at the data, the wealthiest race in America are Asian Americans. They make about 100 grand a year for family income. Then it's whites at 71, Hispanics 58, black is 46. Um, you, you are not guaranteed more money in this country based on your skin color. So therefore, a, a, a Kansas City Caucasian person who makes 30 grand a year could theoretically get hurt more um, than a white person making 100 grand a year. Just because if there's a sales tax, an income tax, whatever it is, obviously the person at 30 is gonna get hit worse. But guess what? There's plenty of people in Kansas City who are white, black, Asian, Latino who make $30,000 a year. So it's really not a, that is an issue of, of income, not an issue of race. This is an issue of race, right? When we talk about the, the wealth gap in this country, the racial wealth gap is based on race. The, the, uh, and I'm not saying there aren't poor white people, I'm not saying there are not wealthy black people, because you know, when we start talking about reparations, everybody says, well, what about Oprah, what about Oprah, what about this person, that person? Okay, what about them? The point is this, is that, is that these, the, the, the racial wealth gap in this country was something that was intentional and deliberate. And what we're talking about is that, and what white people really should understand is that it benefits the whole of society. It hurts the whole of society to have one segment of the society that's, that's oppressed. If, if you lift up everybody, then everybody everybody benefits. But but this whole racial wealth gap is something that I think has to be addressed because, because no matter, you, you, can, you can pull out this example and that example. I think in Kansas City, uh, and I've, I've got the data here, I think the average uh, wealth for white families is 180-some thousand. The average wealth for black families is 24,000 or something like that. I don't know the exact number. I actually have it right here. What is it? The median household net worth of a white family in Kansas City is 188,000 compared to 24,000 for a black family, nearly eight times less. That's the problem, see, that's the problem. Well, well, so if that's the problem, does that mean that we have to make up that difference? That would be a payment uh, of about $160,000 per black resident. Does that sound about right? Well, I'm, again, we don't want to put the cart before the horse. We have to let the commission do its work. We're not going to, I'm not going to say, well, we need to do a cash payment of X, Y, and Z. Um, the issue is, what does it take from, a, uh, from, a, from an investment from the city to address the, the racial wealth gap. And there's a lot of recommendations that could come from that. The Urban League produced a report, their state of black Kansas City. It talked about a 50-year tax um, you know, abatement. So there's a lot of different things that could be done, but we have to let the commission do its work. Did people in Evanston feel insulted when you did put a price tag on their harm and said, this is worth $25,000? Did some people say, oh, I can't believe this? Well, I'll say that everyone understands that it's a down payment. It's a step towards, it's not a settlement. We're still doing the work. Question, Cliff? Yeah, so we're gonna switch gears a little bit here. Um, virtual attendee asks, will the changing of street names such as Troost also have a role to play in reparations? Mickey, we're hearing about right now about you know, Troost changing to truth. Is that part of reparations too? 
Yeah, I think that, that uh, there is a part of reparations that talks about uh, racist monuments, racist statutes, racist names of streets. Uh, all of that is part of the, the uh, reparatory justice. All of that is part of repair. And, and so, yeah, I think, I think that uh, that is inclusive. Everything that repairs the damage that's been done to us, which includes uh, things like changing street names. So, yeah, we will accept that as part of reparatory justice. But actually, that came up a few years ago, and didn't the city council charge the park board with examining all place names and monuments in Kansas City that had a slavery or racial connection? And didn't the park board do absolutely nothing about it, Melissa Robinson? Yes, I champion both of those pieces of legislation. One, a more comprehensive approach for parks and um, uh, our monuments and memorials, which the parks board um, has a separate you know, authority and um, can choose what they do and don't do. Um, and they decided not to do that. And so we're left with doing a piecemeal approach, um, looking at the uh, streets that the city has um, oversight of. And so I introduced a um, resolution to look at getting public feedback about changing the name of Truce, because Truce, we're on a grid system. It's not just uh, south of the river. Truce goes all the way up north as well. And so we want to make sure that we get um, feedback of, from people who are directly impacted by it. But we certainly, I, I agree that it is a part of that repertory justice that we can't continue to uplift uh, slaveholders um, in Kansas City. I'm curious to know, with all of these changes, whether it be reparations, whether it be the changing of names, do any of these require to go to the ballot box or can the Reparations Commission decide these things and the city council approve them and they become the lord of the land in Kansas City? Our charter does say that there are certain things that the council cannot do, that the voters do have to weigh in on, especially when we look at taxes. So it depends on how um, those those uh, the revenues going to be collected. And so individuals that we've talked about up here as examples. So if you're, you know, um, someone who who is uh, recently settled and you have uh, the your voting rights, you can go in and weigh in at the voting uh, at the ballot box. We talk about changing a street name. If, if reparations was a polarizing issue, Pete, just even changing a name. We had it, of course, with the Poseo, where there was the concern whether it was going to change the name to Martin Luther King. These have become um, hot potato issues. And the Poseo pushback was across all racial backgrounds, too. Do I think it changes anybody's um, life? I don't believe so, but I'm willing on that issue to say, if it means something to somebody who had a different background than me, if that makes them feel uh, better, more inclusive, the street name to me is, is a non-issue. Is it an on-issue for you, Jack? Well, you know, we live in Jackson County. That's named after Andrew Jackson, who is both a slave trader uh, and an Indian killer. We'll right? change that one, too. <laughs> so are you support that, too, Jack? No, would I support changing Jackson County? I don't know. I don't know. I would change it to uh, Reagan County or Lincoln County or someone, you know, someone respectful. There you go. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, when we talked about putting issues on the ballot box in Evanston, Robin, did it, when you were using a marijuana tax to provide $25,000 payments for down payments for homes, home repairs, did that require voter approval or were you able to do that just directly through the city council? It was through a legislative action. It didn't require um, a ballot action. Now, there are some communities that have used the ballot, uh, Detroit 
is one that was probably the first, maybe still the only, that passed with a ballot initiative. Mickey, you mentioned just a little bit earlier in an answer that uh, people ask about Oprah and all of these people who have lots of money uh, when it comes to reparations. But is there an income cap, cap being considered in Kansas City that we would say, you know, if you are of a certain uh, uh, income threshold, you wouldn't be eligible? Uh, should it be dedicated to people of lower income? Should, you know, professionals like judges and surgeons be able to get this money? You know, Nick, you're asking me questions that I simply don't have an answer for. As Melissa has said over and over again, those are questions that the commission will take up. Uh, the commission will determine eligibility. The commission return, will, will determine uh, how uh, repertory justice is dispersed. We just don't know all of that right now. Keep in mind that we're early in this process. Commission has had one meeting, uh, but that's part of their charge is to develop answers to those types of questions. Well, the marijuana tax, here's another question you may not be able to answer, was um, paid the way it was paid for in Evanston, uh, Illinois. How would it be paid for in Kansas City? Do you have a sense of where that money would come from? Well, I just wanted to make the point about the marijuana tax, that the, the voters did decide on how that was um, used, but we introduced an ordinance, and we said the 3% is going to be used on violence prevention houselessness. You can't just take that money that you said at, at that time was going to go to those issues and now use it for reparations. We cannot. Okay. Do you have a sense of where that funding could come from? I do not, but it will probably, because we do have, you know, Hanc the Hancock Amendment and things of that nature, it will probably, uh, we would probably have to look to the voters to approve something. Okay. Is this a one-time payment, by the way, or is this something you're going to be continuing moving forward with? I mean, if, if we decide today that it is $25,000 like Evanston, Illinois, and say uh, we're going to do it to home repairs and uh, uh, putting a down payment on a home, uh, will that be something then we'll be doing again in 2025, 2026, 2027, 2028, or is it a one and done? Well, I think that, that uh, one of the things that, that I think it might possibly happen is that we understand that municipalities are limited in, in what they can do, and they may not be able to do everything at once. They may say that this needs to take a three-year period or a five-year period, et cetera. But again, uh, I, I, just, I just can't answer that at this point because we're just not at that point yet. Well, you've got more questions you may not be able to answer. Claire? Yeah, we do. Let me start with this one here from Howard. Is the discussion today about reparations due to being enslaved or for the bad treatment of black Americans for the last 150 years? This discussion has seemed to be, seems to have been focused on the latter. Are we talking at all about the former, the history of slavery? Yeah, it, it's all of that. Uh, we, we, we're saying that, that uh, reparations is basically designed to repair the harm that black people have been suffered. And of course, a lot of that originated during the period of enslavement. But it just didn't end there. Uh, what, what we're talking about now are vestiges of slavery. All of those things happened because we were initially enslaved. And, uh, and we were never fully compensated for that. And so because of the, that initial period, we've been oppressed and depressed uh, all along. And so, so all of the things that has happened to black people uh, after slavery, and slavery, of course, is, 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 is clearly the, 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 uh, the, the, the fundamental part of this. 
But, but what we're saying is that damage has been done to black people from, from uh, after Reconstruction to the Jim Crow era up until this point. So yeah, we're talking about compensation for harm, and all of that harm did not occur solely in slavery. All of that, that, that harm has continued to occur up to this day, and we think that all of it deserves uh, reparatory justice. If and once reparations are approved, will their payment make race, race relations better or worse? And what's the reason for your answer? Jack? It'll make it worse. I mean, except for the fact that a lot of people will say, give them one more reason not to live in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, I live in Kansas City, Missouri. And part of the reason I want to get back to root causes is this. I, I have a book coming out in July. It's called Untenable. And it talks about my own growing up, watching my hometown of Newark, New Jersey collapse around me. And I got to see why it was collapsing. Uh, in 1960, my neighborhood was, it was integrated. The school on my block was 50% black. It was intact. There was no street crime. It was stores up and down the street. By 1975, it was, it was a hellhole. And we have to look at what happened. The real damage started. Uh, the black community did a brilliant job surviving slavery, surviving Jim Crow. Uh, the communities were strong in Kansas City in the 50s and 60s. If we don't look at that, we're just, we're talking around the issue. Yeah, but, but Mickey Dean, though, is rubbing his head thinking, I don't agree huh? with that. He, he can say I mean, that. I mean, we, 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 we did a brilliant job doing slavery. Is that, is that what you said? No, I'm saying you did a brilliant job overcoming the effects of slavery. The black community, with, with the civil rights era, I mean, the era of institutional racism created were heroes. With the era of institutional white guilt created are opportunists. And until you face the reality of the world we're living in today, and let's face it right now, everyone in this audience is a one percenter by world standards. Uh, every, every black person in Kansas City, no matter their circumstances, are living better than 90, 95, 99% of the people in the world. So we all have a lot to be grateful for. We have to recognize Robin, that. Robin yeah. wants to respond to that. Let me, so I will agree that we are brilliant, resilient, incredible, dynamic, culturally rich, on and on and on and on. But what I wanted to do is add to that question from experience and having passed in Evanston dispersed and how it has improved race relations. It's improved, it hasn't worsened absolutely, race relations. People, absolutely. People didn't start leaving Evanston, Absol Illinois folks as a result are of proud. that. Folks are moving back to Evanston. We are attracting talent um, in high level positions in Evanston because they believe in a city that has had the audacity to say yes to reparations. We've seen more black um, hires and leadership, inclusion on boards, committees and commissions. We've seen more support of black businesses. We have seen more engagement in black community. Black community has a voice, a sense of place, more ownership. It has been a tremendous benefit. We can already begin to look at the benefit, the public benefit, even before we disperse the $25,000. Does, does, Pete, does it help or hurt race relations? Well, I, I believe the polling shows it will hurt. Uh, and that's all I can look at right now. I can't speak to what's happened in Evanston in the last couple of years, but I think the polling shows it's a, a very divisive um, issue that breaks down along race. So if it breaks down along race, then it can't be something that unites us based on different races. Melissa, as somebody who serves on the city council, is this a very visible public figure? You get the aggravation when you go to the grocery store, or the restaurant, wherever you go around in the community. Are you worried about that? 
No, I'm not worried at all because what's untenable is the fact that our education system, the Kansas City Public School System, hasn't seen a property tax levy in 50 years. What's untenable is the you know lack of strategic investment in the third district. I've been legislating for the past four years with like a, a one arm behind my back because you know our, we're doing it policy by policy, and we need a comprehensive approach if we're going to address these things. And so I think it will help race relations. No one is asking anyone for their guilt. What we're asking for is justice. What we're asking for is repair. What we're asking for is liberation. Um, and so we're asking for to be treated with uh, dignity and respect. And so this is not about white guilt. This is about identifying a specific challenge that the city has and being able to invest thoughtfully and to address and provide a solution. Can I say one thing about okay. race relations? See, see, every time I hear race relations, it's always about how white folks feel, okay? Uh, let, me, let, me tell you, let me tell you what hurts race relations, all right? All of this, all of this legislation uh, for voter suppression, that hurts race relations because that hurts black people. Trying to take uh, black history out of the schools. See, you don't hear that, does that hurt race relations because it doesn't affect white people, it affects black people. Every time it's about race relations, it's what makes white folks feel bad. But race relations has to do, first of all, well, I don't want to get into that, but anyway. No, yeah. you did a good job. I want to get a rebuttal though from Jack, he wanted to say something. Hey, I want to say thanks to Melissa for repeating the name of my book three times, Untenable. Uh, but to schools, let's, I mean, and this is where we get back to the question of what good are we accomplishing? So for instance, in starting in 1977, and sort of peaking in 1985, those who were around Kansas City knew what Kansas City did. We invested, against the taxpayers, well, indifferent to the taxpayers, $2 billion in the Kansas City School District. And does anyone think that it made any difference or any improvement? Or did we just squander $2 billion? Uh, these are the questions we've got to ask. What are we going to accomplish? Melissa, what are we going to accomplish? I was on the school board for five years, and so I, this is a passionate topic of okay. mine. Um, and the reality is, is that we invested in, yes, beautiful facilities, but what we did immediately after that sitting in this beautiful charter school, um, is that we started to take away resources from our school district and destabilize our public school system. And one of the things was, is that when we talk about reparations and bringing people back to the third district, because by the way, we have a large population loss because of the conditions that are there now, is that we need to make sure that we have a good school system so that people will feel like they want to live in Kansas City. And so when you give um, billions of dollars, we a hundred million, and they're probably fact, fact checking me right now, yeah. but a hundred million dollars um, on our city's balance sheet going to um, developers instead of going to our taxing jurisdictions, our schools. Um, that's a problem. And then we wonder why we have crime and violence because we're not investing in education. And by the way, we did try to do this forum in a Kansas City public school and once the, and were booked, and once they found out the topic was reparations, they didn't want to do it anymore. Thus, we are here, and we're very grateful to the University of County yes, for I'm being very gra yes. so grateful partners. Another question from you, Claire. This is a follow-up question for Robin Rue Simmons. So given that the, the effort in Evanston improved race relations in the city, um, can you provide some context for what helped the largely white population of Evanston understand the need and just cause for reparations? 
Sure, uh, that was the public education piece ongoing. Uh, we've had symposiums, we've had uh, town halls. Initially, we were having them quarterly um, with local advocates and activists, as well as national experts and scholarship um, to just educate the community. But that's been the key there. Can we make amends uh, without having to do any financial help whatsoever? The word reparations comes from the Latin word repair. We've talked about that. Can we repair with simply an apology? No. Okay. Why is that insufficient? Because when we, again, look at the outcomes that we have within the community, uh, an apology is not going to be sufficient to get us to achieve parity. That's what we're, um, we're trying to get at is parity. We're using an equitable lens of what does it take to make sure that we're all included and that we're on a level playing field, and we cannot do that without an investment. This is a reparations commission. You've heard of things like blue ribbon panels and task forces that the city puts together. This has happened over the years. And what often happens with that? How would you feel, Mickey, after all of this work, getting to this reparations commission, that the report comes out a year from now with those initial recommendations, and that report just sits on a desk, uh, on a shelf, gathering dust? How would I feel? Not good. <laughs> I can tell you that. Uh, but, you know, see, here, here's the thing about, about reparations and the proposals. There, there's nothing... No progress that black people have made without having to, to fight for it, without having to upset something, without having to hit the streets, you know. I mean, once upon a time, people thought Nat Turner was crazy. You'll never, you'll never uh, get out of slavery. So what, what I'm saying, Nick, is that, is that when those proposals come forward, this is something that we're just going to have to fight for, you know? Or we're going to have to get out in the streets. We got to do whatever we got to do to get justice in this country because, because we, we can't afford to let proposals for repertory justice sit on a shelf. So the question becomes, what are we going to do about it? If the city decides that they don't want to act on it, then we have to act on it. We, we, mo most change comes when it's, when it's forced, not through people's goodwill, but it comes when it's forced. So if we have to hit the streets, we have to hit the streets. Whatever we have to do to get this justice, we have to do it. Uh, otherwise, we won't get it. The other big component of this we have never mentioned, and that is the Missouri legislature. What happens um, if they come in and say, you know, we're going to stop cities from actually having reparations programs? They've done it with so many other areas, blocking Kansas City from having its own minimum wage, for instance, blocking cities in Missouri from allowing, uh, you know, grocery store plastic bag bans, for instance. Uh, have you heard of any movement at the legislative level to come in uh, and, you know, put their heavy boot on Kansas City to say, that's not going to happen, Pete? I have not. Um... I have not heard anything on that front. I think they are probably anxiously awaiting uh, the recommendations, but no, I, I, uh, I, I have no knowledge. I have not heard a word about any pushback that would come from the state on this. What is the biggest barrier to achieving, as we leave this program today, reparations in Kansas City that we've discussed, and how would we overcome it, Melissa? A public will and also the new seated city council because we will have to ultimately vote on these things. And so these, these forums like this are so important because we do need to, to build public will, build public support 
um, and we need to engage the public along the way. Um, as tonight, there were a lot of questions that could not be answered, but we have to bring people along. Um, they need to know about the recommendations. They need to be involved in the recommendations. So when they do come out um, and they go before the city council, there will be some public will to support that. Without it, I think it's gonna be very difficult um, with uh, pushing it through to the city council. As a political watcher in this community, Pete, what do you see as the biggest barrier and can it be overcome? Well, it's hard to define the barriers without knowing what the ask is. Mm -hmm. And uh, that clearly is- It's easier also to be supportive until you know what you might be asked to sacrifice well, that, to be able to make it happen. Well, that's true too. As you know, I was, I was reading some stuff on Evanston where there was pushback, it seems like on, on both ends, not enough, you know, doing something, whatever it is. So, um, I, you know, the barriers are a lot of what we've talked about tonight. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of talking in circles and talking in corners, and that's going to happen until somebody figures out how to deliver that message um, that clicks. And, and I haven't heard it, but that's only because it seems like we don't even know what we're talking about yet. So well, there's the really no way is, to... Flying in from Illinois, we have the person who has that message that can click. And that final message that can click for, for folks even watching on our television program this evening, who are gonna say, I'm not quite getting this. W what is that message? Uh, continue to be engaged. This is a great forum. This is an example of public education. I'm sure, show of hands, did anyone learn anything today? Anyone? Look at that. Look well, at that. Good. There's that's your good. answer. That's positive. Right? Um, and so just continue to be engaged, be open. Jack, what is the biggest barrier and can it be overcome? Well, the way that you overcome the barriers, if, if in Kansas City we just taxed the stoners like they did in Evanston, it might get by. They just, it's a marijuana tax. Uh, but Kansas City is not Evanston. Lawrence is Evanston. That's a progressive university town. Lawrence, Evanston is. The, uh, the barrier here is uh, the resistance. Of, I mean, I, for instance, I raised this at my breakfast club last week. I said, hey, I'm going to be on thing doing reparations. Well, probably the nicest thing per someone said was preposterous, you know? I mean, and it went, it went downhill from there. The uniformity of resistance among uh, certainly the conservative white population. There's not that many conservatives in Kansas City uh, they'll have to appeal to the guilt of their uh, of the liberal part of the population, uh, but it's it's not a good idea here. It, it won't succeed on a major scale until we begin to address the macro problem. And if I could just cite Barack Obama, if 2008 Father's Day at the Op Apostolic Church of Christ in Chicago, he gets up and he says, "There is one problem plaguing our community, and we have to address it." and that's the absence of fathers in the home. And then it goes through the statistics. Kids who grew up fatherless, 10 times more likely to go to prison, five times more likely to drop out of school, 10 times more likely to end up on poverty. And that was Barack Obama. He only said that once. You got to address that. If you don't, you're just moving deck chairs. And you have had your word on that. The biggest barrier in your mind uh, Mickey is watered, and how do you overcome that? Well, here's what, what has to happen. See, what, what white people have to come is that they're, they're so opposed to what they think black people are getting some kind of unfair advantage. What white people have to understand is that they've had unfair advantages for 400 years, okay? This is why the situation, let me talk. <laughs> this is why the situation is, is, is what it is now. And what you have is you have a lot of these conservative po politicians that are just stoking uh, th th this racism by making white people think if we get something, then it's taken from them. And that's not necessarily the case. So I think that as, as uh, uh, what, what Robin said, what they did in uh, Evanston is that 
There has to be a lot of education about when we say reparations, what are we talking about? It's going to be hard. It's, it's going to be very, very, very hard uh, to try to convince enough people, but I think it can be done. You have been listening to our panelists here on reparations. I'm going to have to say this. If you tell people you're going to do a program about reparations and ask people, would you be on a panel, they run for the hills. <laughs> Everybody's got an opinion about reparations. Very few people are willing to put themselves on a stage or appear on television to tell you their viewpoint. I want to commend this group of five for saying, yes, let's make it happen. I might have reservations. Uh, but I think it's important, and this is one of the few places you can have an ideologically diverse group of people talking about this issue. Thank you for caring about this from our sponsors and from the American Public Square and the great people here at the Uni University Academy at 68th and Holmes. I'm Nick Haynes of Kansas City PBS. Be well, keep calm, and carry on. This special presentation of Kansas City Week in Review was made possible by the William T. Kemper Foundation, Commerce Bank Trustee, and the Health Forward Foundation, with ongoing support from AARP Kansas City, RSM, Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Gorley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, the restaurant at 1900, and by viewers like you. Thank you.